Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, we are surrounded by symbols. Like even right now, there are symbols in our midst uh, on the recording equipment, on uh, on our shirts, on our clothing. Well, not yours. You're symbol free. Is that by design? Well, I'm wearing black, and you could say that um, I'm sort of trying to communicate some sort of message here. Yes, so right an absence here. of symbols, but that in itself is kind of a symbol. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I embrace the void, and that's what I'm trying to tell people with this. You have your Boards of Canada shirt on. Yeah, which kind of has a logo symbol thing going on for sure. And just going through our daily life, just think of how many symbols we encounter. I mean, corporate logos, um, religious iconography. Basic, like, male bathroom, female bathroom, no parking, uh, uh, wheelchair accessible. I mean, the symbols just completely crowd our world. And even though we don't think about it, those symbols are constantly communicating with us. Our our brain is is in sync with all of them. And uh, and so in this episode, we'd like to really step back and think about symbols, about what they are, how they work, how our brain uh, interfaces with them, and... uh, and, and, and really to what con- extent they control us. Yeah, because we we're essentially talking about the conceptual life of a stand-in for something else. It's yes. how we make meaning of our world. So even something as simple as, say, me working on my computer and seeing a spinning rainbow that looks like a mint, uh, this means something to me. It means that I'm now in the doldrum, doldrums of uncertainty here. Yes. And I'm going to get frustrated pretty soon because an application isn't working, right? And of course, I'm talking about the Mac um, Hypno Wheel of Doom. Well, the, the wheel as a symbol of uh, of endless cycle and of frustration. I mean, that's all. I mean, the Buddhist symbol of the wheel is about uh, uh, you know being being trapped in a cycle that won't end. And so, uh, so the, the the frustration of the wheel, even that, is an old symbol uh, that takes on new meaning in our technological age. Right. That's that's really powerful, right? Mm-hmm. That this thing can communicate this to us. Um, so signs, as you say, they can take all sorts of forms. They can take, or excuse me, symbols can take all sorts of forms like signs, uh, words, letters, odors even, flavors. All yeah. these things are a stand-in for some sort of experience or some sort of idea, and they have no meaning unless we invest them with meaning and they have context. In fact, semioticians generally say that um, there are no pure icons. So mm-hmm. you mentioned the bathroom icons of the male and the female, those right. stick figures. One is wearing a skirt, one is not. But if you are coming from a culture where, say, that the men wear skirts or some sort of uh, clothing. You mean like a kilted culture? like a- uh, I'm not so much Scotland because I feel like they're, mm-hmm. they're in the know on, in the West of, of what, what those sort of icons mean. But maybe, let's say... Uh, you were in the, an undiscovered tribe, and then all of a sudden, for some reason, you were discovered and ferried into a, a um, area where there was a Western bathroom. Well, there's a lot that's that's going to perplex. There's going to be the so much bathroom. that you're trying to take in there, but those symbols aren't necessarily going to mean something to you, particularly if the males wear a clothing item that resemble a skirt. Right. I mean, clearly, that's a person on that sign, that one sign. Uh, is it a male? Is it female? I don't know. It must mean humans go in here, or this is where humans come from. And then, likewise, there's another sort of mouse-shaped human. <laughs> and yeah, what, and what is that supposed to mean? Right. Is it a human? Is it a monster of some kind? Uh, a hybrid form? Yeah. And what is what is this plumbing thing? This this machine I'm supposed to poop in? Yeah, with the clean water, the drinking water in it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there are a lot of different issues there, but. 
yeah, all these things are stand-ins for experience. And I wanted to bring up the Marble Man because I feel like in the West, particularly during a certain historical era, the Marble Man was big. I mean, he was like the the symbol of rugged individualism, virility, um, just like the male dominance. Yeah, he was he was he was virile. He was he was macho. He's a cowboy. He's smoking. He's not caring. He's 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 everything you would want to be. He's living off the land. And, of course, now we see that and we think a little bit more like a blackened lung. It doesn't quite have the same yeah. power that it used to. So the symbol of the Marlboro Man has has kind of shifted, at least from my interpretation, I think for a lot of people's interpretation, based on the shift in our culture. Right. And I don't think that's a surprise to say that symbols um, are not static and that they change because our language changes all of the time. It right. has to be fluid. Um, it has to in order to deliver those memes that we talked about, right? These ideas that rise to the surface and, and carry the symbol with them to the greater uh, culture out there. Yeah, another uh, big example of a symbol that's meaning has changed uh, is the swastika. The swastika, is, of course, is a very old image, and there are various forms of the swastika. You know, kind of the there's, of course, the the, the more modern um, German swastika that was used during the Second World War by the Nazis. You have uh, you have uh, Hindu swastikas, you have Buddhist swastikas. Uh, it dates back all the way to the, the Indus Valley civilization. And uh, the um, if you look back at Zoroastrian religion of Persia, mm-hmm. uh, the swastika was more a symbol of a revolving sun, of infinity, of continuing creation. And if you weren't exposed to the 20th century, the swastika might still inspire that in your mind because, I mean, that's the basic form of the thing, the motif of the thing. There's a sense of, of, of cycle to it and, and, uh, and a very sun-like imagery in it. But we come into it with our knowledge of the 20th century, with our knowledge of the Nazis, of, uh, of all that transpired during the Second World War and the Holocaust, and so all of that gets factored into the image. So an, an image that for the longest time just stood for uh, basic basically very positive ideas and powerful ideas becomes this dark image of hatred. Right. It was appropriated, and it's now what is the stand-in for what it formerly was. So, again, this idea that it can change, that it's fluid. And this made me think of the Pioneer plaque. Ah, yes. Because this this is a great example of not just um, the changing ideas we have of what uh, the human species is or should be represented, but also a great example of how powerful symbols are. Because how do you try to um, d- to communicate with the universe? You you try to boil down the earth and the human experience with a couple of symbols, which is exactly what happened when the Pioneer plaque was put on the Pioneer probe that was launched in 1972. Yeah, I mean the idea here was let's sum up who we are, where we are, in an attempt to possibly communicate with an extraterrestrial uh, species, or at the very least to serve as kind of a time capsule to say, it, it's kind of like uh, the humans, the human race as a pair of lovers carving their name into a tree. That's kind of, yeah, and, and ultimately yeah. that's kind of how Sagan uh, saw it too, it was more of a time capsule and less of a, uh, an actual communication, but still it was created in the name of communicating with another species. Yeah, and we're talking about simple line drawings that are engraved Mm -hmm. in this plaque. So it has diagrams of the Earth's location and drawings of a nude man and a nude woman. Now, very simple and straightforward, right? But if you look at this a little bit closer, you notice that the man has his hand up as if he's waving. Or as, as if he has a question. There's something he doesn't understand. Yeah, or if he's just checking the wind direction. Yeah. Yeah. Or he's, uh, he's, he's, he's hailing a cab. 
Or he's stretching. Or he's stretching, yeah. Or he's got some sort of like uh, weird limb thing where his arm just rises. Oh, up. alien hands yeah. syndrome. Yeah. 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 So he's got his hand up and the female does not. And if you look at this, you could start to say, ah, okay, I can infer here that this man, he is the signifier, the form that an idea takes. And what is being signified is the concept. So the concept here is that the man is the representative for the human species, mm-hmm. that he is the person who is um, trying to communicate. And if you really, really start to look at this closely, then you, it, from the perspective of humans, of course, because we can occupy no other perspective, you begin to understand that there is a hierarchy involved here, even though we're talking about very simple line drawings. Now, is this representative of the culture right now in 2013? Yeah, I, because we were close now, unlike we did back then. Yeah. Well, well, there might be a different kind of plaque that was sent out to try to communicate what we are or yeah, who we are. I think maybe the, the male and female would be a little more uh, equal in, in that. Now, of course, the plaque in, involves some other stuff, too. It, it showed the hyperfine uh, uh, transition of neutral hydrogen. It showed uh, relative position of the sun to the center of the galaxy in 14 pulsars, solar system, the spacecraft, you know. Uh, but but certainly the depictions of us are, are central there, and uh, and there are a number of criticisms to make. Of, I mean, obviously there there are the the cultural implications of the, the whole raising of the hand. What does that mean? But would uh, but would another culture understand that? Would an, would, an, would extraterrestrials who don't have arms, who say have tentacles instead, what would they make of this? Would they would they understand the the hand signifier? Or even if they had hands, perhaps in their culture it's more of a. They might say, oh well, look, the man is clearly the um, subservient. Uh, of these two, because uh, he has to rush forward and eat the food that the other uh, creature is going to eat later. You know, they might have some sort of weird connotation that totally skews it. Well, of course, and that's where the context is everything, right? Yeah. And like, the, what if raising your hand to another culture is the extent is is the equivalent of uh, putting up the middle finger? Like, imagine the pioneer plaque well, if he was if he was flipping <laughs> off the, the other other species. I mean, then you get also into things like, for instance, the arrow, arrows are used on that. Uh, on that plaque. Mm-hmm. And would the arrow as a symbol make sense to a species that never used a bow and arrow, never used a javelin, uh, that, that didn't have some sort of uh, hunter-gatherer um, ancestry? Or as we were talking about earlier, you, were, you said, should, we, should they have had a child on there? And that made me think of uh, the fossil record, where we, we're always running into these situations when we're looking at dinosaur bones, where we say, now, is this a different creature, or is this the mm-hmm. female um, of of the species is this a is this merely an infant of the species? So you can imagine a situation where they might look and not realize that they're dealing with two uh, with two genders. Because what if the what if the aliens looking at this plaque did not have genders? What if they had five genders? You know what what would they make of this? How would they interpret it? Right. So I mean, it's kind of hard to try to to make something that would really make sense unless you have an understanding of how another culture or, or civilization uh, or species would conceive of it so uh but still it's a really it's a really fine attempt to to boil down a lot of information into a very concise package and that's ultimately what's so amazing about symbols well but i also think that the pioneer plaque is largely for us as humans yes it's the excitement of saying guess what we're humans this is what we look like we're we're cool here's our name written on the uh, on the tree here's our coordinates right here's the some of the stuff that's in our atmosphere but yeah that's what i love about symbols is that uh, a a symbol can be something very simple like the at symbol Mm -hmm. or the proposed uh the symbol which looks like a t and an h yeah that uh, where all you have is okay you have some letters that are symbols and those symbols make a word that is a symbol for something and then we have a slightly smaller, more concise symbol to, to represent that word. 
or that or that concept. But then you have again things like the swastika, things like uh, the Marlboro Man, things like the Pioneer plaque, where the symbol instantly conveys a lot of data. And if you had to to describe even to even to to like in modern terms what a swastika means what a crucifix means, what a Marlboro Man means. You're talking like a whole essay. You'd have to sit there and write it out. You'd have to sit there and, and use a verbal language to describe it for uh, you know five minutes or so, whereas the symbol, instantly. That's right, because you get it coded in your brain, and then you just bring it up and up again. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about how our brain works on symbols. Side note, do we really need a symbol for the? That's T-H. I mean, are we that lazy? We just, I mean, it's one letter. Well, just the e. it would make tweets easier and, and texting easier. But uh, but there are a lot of people that argue that it is unnecessary. But mm-hmm. it is a very one commonly letter. used word. I know, but you, you're losing one letter. That's, yeah. that's it. Well, see, I mean, then we can really go ahead. We could go ahead and just reduce it to TH to cut out one letter or just reduce it to duh, D-A. Okay, I have an idea about that. Yeah. But I want to save it until we talk about the brain. Okay. Okay. All right, so to make this case... Uh, we also wanted to talk about Neanderthals yes. and crows because they figure into this symbolic representation as well. Yes, so uh, Neanderthals, of course, um, are hominid brethren who are no longer with us, people before people. Uh, we did an entire uh, podcast episode about uh, these uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and they're, they're always endlessly uh, fascinating uh, because they are before us. They are different from us. Mm-hmm. They are, in a sense, as close as we can get to an extraterrestrial being, you know? I mean, they're terrestrial, obviously, but they are like us, but unlike us. Well, and we have some of their DNA. Right. We know this. Yeah. So uh, we were looking at this uh, particular study where archaeologist Zhao Zihao of the University of Bristol in England and his uh, colleagues found a 50,000-year-old perforated painted seashells and pigment containers on the Iberian Peninsula in southwestern Europe. And this was a region that was uh, inhabited solely by Neanderthals at the time, uh, modern humans um, who lived in Africa at the time used similar objects as jewelry and for body painting uh, to symbolize, you know, their various social standing, etc. But uh, this particular study, this particular find, suggests that the brains of the common ancestor of both species must have already had the biological basis for symbolic thought. Uh, so way back then, they were using these shells, they were using pigments as a, as a way mm-hmm. to signify uh, roles and uh, and positions within their society. Yeah, I mean, Zellhau is saying that uh, they had the biological basis for symbolic thought dating back about half a million years ago, because he says assigning specific meanings to arbitrary words and sounds is symbolic thinking by definition. Yeah. So it really makes you think about how this was the predecessor for actual language. Yeah, it, and it, it boils down to one of the, the hallmarks of the human species, and, and, and to their point, some uh, some predecessors of, of humans as well, uh, about what makes us so successful, and that's our ability to externalize internal processes, such as cooking, of course, uh, is is externalizing internal digestion. And symbolic thought is essentially externalizing aspects of our thinking that, uh, that, that free up our cognitive abilities so that we can maximize what we're doing internally. Of course, all of this is predicated on the idea that we have to survive. And in order to survive, we've got to be able to suss out these symbols and figure out our universe. And you have to look at crows yes. as, a, as a really good example of this. Uh, we are talking about crows capable of distinguishing symbols. This was from a study led by Shoi Sugita, who used eight jungle crows, relatives of the American crow, by the mm-hmm. way. And uh, the Japanese scientists also 
found that the jungle crows were able to determine which container that they had in front of the crows held food and which did not based on a symbol system. Yeah, one of the, uh, cont- the containers would have either a two or a five. Yeah, and they had a pretty, like, a 70% success rate. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they did about 20 different experiments with food and symbols. And eventually the, the crows clocked in at about 70 to 90% success rate as they did this more and more matching food to symbol. So we know that this is just a very basic, uh, rudimentary skill that, that all animals have, including humans, in order to suss out how to get to what we need. All right, well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to discuss language, we're going to discuss symbols some more, and we're going to discuss how symbols uh, interact with our brain. All right, we're back. And uh, let's talk a little bit about language. What What is language and, uh, and, and how it relates to symbols? I mean, ultimately... Uh, as, as we were talking about earlier, we're talking about externalizing internal processes. We're talking about using them as uh, as kind of footholds uh, as we ascend to uh, more complicated topics. Uh, I mean, basically the use of words, verbal or written, signifiers and symbols. They represent ideas, and when they're combined, they allow us to build more complicated ideas. That's right. So um, it is basically the way that we navigate our world. We just do not think of it that way because language each letter is a symbol, right? Yeah. Each word, each phrase, each paragraph has more and more meaning that's built upon it, more and more symbols that become these shorthands. And you begin to look around, you know, widen your scope a little bit, and you see that the traffic signals that direct you, um, whether or not you're taking a train or you're driving in a car, there are all sorts of navigational signals that are telling you how to order your world. Yeah, and we've discussed before the idea, too, that language is essentially the operating system for the human brain, mm-hmm. that uh, we have all the hardware, and then language is uh, is what we use to actually think about things and to actually tackle uh, concepts. Yeah, it's something like the periodic table of elements, right? This is This mm-hmm. is a good example of symbols and us trying to make the invisible world visible to us, albeit in this form, uh, where we can try to figure out the properties of each element. Yeah, because the periodic table, obviously, it's not a true map. It's not a place. It's summing up a lot of things that are invisible or are uh, a lot more complicated and taking that boiling it down into a, a, a version of reality that makes sense even at a quick glance. You look at it, the periodic table, and you realize this is the scientific underpinning of the substances that that uh, make up uh, physical reality. Yeah, even the coordinates on it have a meaning to them, right? So mm-hmm. if you're looking at a certain vertical column, then you know that they all share ser- similar properties. Yeah, and even even though it's not a, a true map, it is a map mm-hmm. of sorts. So, And so that's just an example of our outer universe that we are ordering, but we also are ordering our inner universe. And I can't help but bring up Carl Jung. Yes. Of course, the Swiss psychoanalyst. Because you're a Jungian. Uh, I don't know that I'm a Jungian. I'm a, uh, I appreciate Jung, yeah. and I have uh, the Red Book, which is a bunch of his drawings of the unconscious uh-huh. via symbols, and it's fascinating and beautiful and, and, and also kind of horrific, too, mm-hmm. because he's using this these archetypes, these symbols, to try to delve into the mind, into the unconscious. And so what he was doing is, is trying to use this universality of symbols to suss out the human experience, the inner world. 
Yeah, and we've all looked at like dream interpretation guides before, where they talk about what these different symbols mean. What these like, what does it mean if you're falling? If, it, if you're falling in a dream, then it means that uh, that uh, that bad stuff may happen during the daylight. If you're being chased through streets, the same thing. If you're if you're turn if your flesh is turning into a tree roots, then it means you're going to get disease. You know, people look for all sorts of portents in uh, in this kind of imagery, uh, but. But but it boils down to the idea that symbols are that powerful. They connect with the subconscious, and if you want to apply supernatural thinking to it, you might think that that symbols also connect us to uh, n- hidden knowledge outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you should also look at it like dreams. They they don't come to you in a highly realistic way. They come to you fully symbolically packaged. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily read a book in your dream. Right. Or I've tried to actually in my dreams, but it's always blurry or something. Um, you know, you you get pounded over the head with all these different archetypes, and so it's very clear that this is important to the operating system of our brains in a way to try to figure out what's been going on. I mean, I, th- I think it's fascinating that it's represented to us in that way. Yeah. Now, the, another area of uh, symbolic use that has always fascinated me, and, and going back to the idea of adding supernatural elements to it, is the use of uh, sickles. Uh, symbolic representations of demons or a wizard's desired outcome. And then you also have uh, hypersigils, uh, such as, um, this was popularized uh, by uh, Grant Morrison, the uh, writer of graphic novels, who uh, saw a hypersigil as an extended work of art with magical meaning and willpower. So like a comic book or a novel or uh, a movie where it's a bunch of symbols that are put together in a way to where the symbols kind of overlap to form some greater symbol. Uh, so I always find that interesting as well. And in a sense, a really crazy dream is a kind of hypersickle. It is. And if you want to check out um, some of some of the archetypes that have been collected by Eris, this is the Archive for Research in Archetypal Symbolism, go to eris.org. Um, you can kind of browse a little bit. You do have to become a member to check out the full catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is an amazing amount of symbolic, mythological, ritualistic images that you can search. And then it actually gives you not just the accompanying um, information about what it means, but it will tell you during what periods of history that it was in popular use in what regions of the world. So it's fascinating. So we've plowed through what symbols are, why they're important to us, how powerful uh, their 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 communication is, how about how a symbol can instantly convey something that would take you paragraphs and paragraphs to uh, to, to completely spell out, uh, that they can sum up things that are in, impossible even to completely uh, relate with language. But how do they interact with the brain itself? All right, so the brain is going to try to visualize a symbol in three different ways. This is according to information designer Ted Wuschak, who has a uh, TED Talk on this. And he says that the brain doesn't actually see the world as it is, but instead creates a series of mental models. And we've talked about this before, too, uh, to get to those aha moments. And David Eagleman talks about this a lot, too, that the unconscious usually kind of burps up an idea. And you have that aha moment, but you don't realize that it's been uh, that that idea has been worked on for months, maybe even years before yeah. it served up. Nobody's view of the real world is actually the real world. It is just a world view that we take on. It's a simulation in a sense. So what happens what what uh what happens before this symbol emblazons itself in our minds? Well of course it begins begins with the eyes. You have light entering, hitting the back of the retina, and it's circulated mostly to the back of the brain, to the primary visual cortex. But then 
According to Wujak, it acts like a relay station that re-radiates and redirects information to other parts of the brain. So we're talking about 30 different parts of the brain that get in on this. But uh, there are three really important ones. The first one is the ventral stream. And this is the part of the brain that recognizes what something is. So if I look at my hand, that's the what. That's my hand. That's a book. That's mm-hmm. a remote control. Uh, the second one is the dorsal stream. And what this does is it locates the object and it creates a mental map in your mind. The third one is the limbic system, which we've talked about a lot in terms of processing emotion. So that's the part that feels like, oh, the aha, the, the emotional response to what that symbol begins to mean, the, the, the form that it's taking as an abstract. Mm-hmm. And this combination of these processing centers help us to make meaning in a bunch of different ways. So one way to understand how symbols interact with the mind is to look at how children learn language. And uh, uh, some of the materials we're looking at, they're talking about how um, when children are learning language, uh, symbol use in the prefrontal cortex, uh, that's where all the activity is taking place. But then as they become accustomed to what these symbols mean, to what language means, the parietal region takes over the job. Uh, The associations become more automatic. So it it comes back to this idea of, um, of symbols as a placeholder. For, uh, for more complex thought. In a sense, it's kind of like we figure out what that basic idea is, we form an idea of what this is about, mm-hmm. and then we assign it that symbol, and then that symbol squared away. In the same way that uh, we might circle a paragraph in, in a book we're reading and then mark it with a signal, like maybe just a star. That star signifies this is an important passage, and it's a passage that I need to come back to. And so, in a sense, we, uh, we do the same thing with uh, our symbolic understanding of the world. Yeah, and it's interesting that you see that in kids, right? That they begin mm-hmm. to shorthand that knowledge so that it can be mapped out in their brains so they can recall it later. And it reminds me of another study that we saw that talked about how expectations speed up conscious perception. Right. So those archetypes that you learn, turns out that when you're taking in a bunch of stimuli, if you recognize that symbol, well, then we're talking about um, your ability to speed up your processing by something like 100 milliseconds. Now, that doesn't sound huge, but just consider that when you're taking in data, it usually takes about 300 milliseconds for it to get perceived. So if you can cut that down by about 30% by those archetypes, that's when the the, the T-H-E to the T-H sort of makes sense, right? Yeah, because it's kind of like how do you win a war? You win a, you can win a war with overwhelming force, but a lot of times if the if the two sides are more equal, you win a, a war, you win a battle uh, with a lot of petty advantages that stack up. So all that, that lost time, uh, all, I mean all that game time, uh, 100 milliseconds here, 100 milliseconds there, uh, it's, a, it's eventually going to potentially make the difference when you're having to think on your feet really fast. And, uh, and and choose that, you know, make that saber-toothed tiger-related decision in your modern life. Yeah, so, I mean, if if you are saving a hundredth millisecond every single time that you're taking in a new piece of data, then you are conserving a lot more energy. And now I'm not a fan of cutting down T-H-E to T-H, uh-huh. but its prevalence in the language, I do understand that there is a conservation of energy in the act. Yeah, I mean, of you don't, naming well, you don't want to you don't want to boil language. it down so much that you don't think. And I think that's one of the the problems uh, that sometimes occur with with symbols is that they are so powerful that they are cutting out our reasoning and depending on existing um, thought that they're they're kind of they're, they're kind of viral. There's a viral power to symbols, it, it, especially within uh, certain cultures. You know, uh, d- depending on how how resonant it is. Like again, I come back to the swastika about mm-hmm. how powerful the swastika becomes as the symbol of hate 
in modern society to the point where it's, for instance, you know, it's outlawed in Germany. You can't go around publishing a swastika on things, even if it's a historic, uh, historically accurate model airplane. Then, uh, y- if you're buying the kit in Germany, you need to uh, see about uh, acquiring your swastika separately. Now, so we were talking about this on our commute, full mm-hmm. of signs this morning, about how this this sort of short uh, shorthand placement stand in. In our brains is really, really helpful, right? Because mm-hmm. it does, it's like shortening the, the T-H-E to T-H. But it can be a problem because what you're talking about is unconscious stereotyping. And we don't necessarily know that we're always doing this. But when we're taking in data and we're thin slicing, as Malcolm Gladwell might say in Blink, uh-huh. we're trying to get that really quick perception. And most of the time that helps us out a lot, but it can really uh, actually show up as errors in our thinking. And it made me think about this study that came up about uh, foreign languages and people using a second language to consider high-risk scenarios. Uh, the study is called The Foreign Language Effect, Thinking in a Foreign Tongue Reduces Decision Biases, which documents uh, a series of experiments on more than 300 people from the U.S. and Korea. And this is from a Wired article by Brian Keem, who says that human reasoning is shaped by two distinct modes of thought – one that's systematic, analytical, and cognition-intensive, and the other that's fast, unconscious, and emotionally charged, right? That's mm-hmm. the feelings that we get, that limbic system coming into play. So the idea is that the cognitive demands of thinking in a non-native language would leave people with a little leftover mental horsepower, ultimately increasing their reliance on quick and dirty cogitation, right? Just that quick analytical. And they did. They found that in the study that people were able to make better, more rational decisions when working in their second language as opposed to their mother tongue, which was freighted with emotion. Hmm. Because you're stepping outside of culture. You're stepping outside of self. Mm -hmm. You're stepping outside of symbol to a certain degree. Yeah. Because if that symbol, I mean, that symbol will mean something to you, but it's going to mean something different in a second language, which has distance from from what was ingrained in your brain when you were being brought up in this one language. It comes back to that idea of language as, a, as an operating system. One language is Mac, one language is, uh, is PC, and uh, certain things are going to uh, travel from one to the next, but some aren't. Um, in Neil Stevenson's book Snow Crash, uh, which is one of his earlier novels, a cyberpunk uh, classic, uh, these days. I read it different from some of his more recent work, but uh, there's a great deal in that book um, that has to do uh, with the trend toward towards divergence in language uh, and about how the fact that we have various languages uh, in the world actually prevents and protects us from widespread harm. Uh, so, you know, we all know the story of a farmer grows only one crop, then his entire farm is susceptible to devastation by a single parasite. So Stevenson draw, you know, draws in the idea that, say, Nazism is a cultural virus, and uh, and if you have a universal language, mm-hmm. then that cultural virus is more uh, has more potential to spread uh, to everyone. Hmm. So the kind of factors into what you're saying there. Well, let's talk a little bit uh, more about how our behaviors altered, and our ideas are altered by symbols. And I'm thinking specifically about Adam Alter, mm-hmm. the psychologist. Yeah, this is the guy who wrote the book on drunk tank pink. Uh, which deals also a lot with color theory. And mm-hmm. hopefully we'll come back and, and do an episode on color theory if there's interest out there in us covering that topic. But uh, he pointed out that Christians uh, tend to behave more honestly when they're exposed to an image of a crucifix, even when they have no conscious memory of having seen it. So there's just a, a cross. And the cross is a lot 
like the swastika, and in a sense, a cross and a swastika are, are at, at very base level the same thing. I mean, both are, are cruciform. Uh, and there are a lot of different crucifixes uh, out there, uh, depending on uh, which you know creed uh, you're, you're uh, adhering to. But uh, the idea that just in the background, just this, this one image that's mm-hmm. heavily charged with meaning and religious purpose, that even if you see it, uh, and you're not even consciously processing it. It's jumping over your conscious thought into the unconscious and affecting the way you're feeling, the way you're thinking, uh, really hacking your entire mindset. Uh, what about Pope John Paul II? Ah, uh, yes, this was a 1989 experiment from the University of Michigan, and they this one found that Christians felt less virtuous after subliminal exposure to an image of Pope John Paul II. I mean, that, I mean, it's because he has, well, the idea is that there are impossible high standards to live yeah. up to, right? Yeah, so some of our younger listeners may not remember uh, John Paul all that much, but he had more of a, you know, a peaceful grandfatherly uh, kind of demeanor uh, for a lot of people. Well, and in terms of popularity, isn't he more like a bit of a rock star in terms of the, the, the popedom? Yeah, 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 definitely so. So people, so he was a very, char- he, he himself became a symbol. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, Merely glancing around and, and catching it was influencing the way people thought about themselves. Now, what about a computer logo? You think that could yes make you feel more creative? Well, I don't more know. Inspired? I don't know about me because I'm not as much of a, of a Mac person. I mean, mm-hmm. I think they make some great products, but I'm not one of the. I don't have the bumper sticker on my car or anything. Uh, but uh, studies have found that when people are exposed to that Mac symbol, they are uh, more likely to think creatively. And likewise, if they're exposed to a symbol of an incandescent light bulb, the whole, oh, I've got an idea. Yeah. And then the light bulb lights up. If they're exposed to that, they're likely to think creative because these are both symbols that are charged with ideas of creative endeavor. And so just by glimpsing them, we're, we're, they hook into our subconscious and make us think about that. Now, that's a 2008 study by Fitzsimmons et al. So you have to wonder if 2013, does Apple have the same staying power? Again, we've talking about fluidity of symbols and their meanings. Yeah, because, uh, you know, a lot of stuff has happened. The, the product itself has arguably taken a dive in some people's, uh, maybe not a dive, but let's say a decline. Uh, but then on the other hand, Steve Jobs passing, the results of that made everyone really, uh, uh, you know, nostalgic for mm-hmm. Apple and really... Uh, Really, you know, celebrate his contributions to our technological life, and then of course you also have had uh, had varying uh, bits of scandal about uh, how our uh, Apple devices are made, right? Which uh, may also add new uh, nuance to the symbol itself. So again, these symbols become um, dependent on all the, the the cultural things feeding into them. They're kind of like they're kind of like a tree growing out of the ground, and the root system runs throughout uh, our culture. And, uh, and even into our history. And it depends on how far those roots are going and, and what they're sucking in, what kind of nutrients they're drawing from our culture uh, to depend on what the form of that tree is. Yeah, it's interesting that that one symbol can bring up so many different threads of thought because you have the, the biography of Steve Jobs. You have um, nations in their economics being powered mm-hmm. or not powered by Apple. Uh, you have people who are being affected at just the the level of not only pay but what they're exposed to in terms of uh, the technologies that they're using, mm-hmm. and then you have this idea of creativity, yeah, all wrapped up into one tiny logo. Yeah, so so it's important to think about these experiences, not because we're, we're, we want to make a definite point about crosses and Christians or and Apple fans, but 
bear in mind that all symbols are interacting with us uh, to varying levels like this. So we encounter them subconsciously or even mi- you know, a little bit consciously, and they're having some sort of an impact on us. If it's a, the McDonald's golden arches, if it's the, the Coca-Cola or the Pepsi symbol, if it's a cross, if it is a, if it is the Star of David, if it's a swastika, what, whatever. Like we encounter these and they convey something to us. And then if you start combining them, if you say slap uh, a swastika on uh, Ronald McDonald, then it's instantly going to create some sort of new um, unsteady symbol uh, and convey that to your mind. He just gave someone a really great art project idea. I oh, I'm sure it's probably already been. I I was somewhere. Uh, I was on Paris, Paris on Ponce, and they have a Ronald McDonald there that's made out of something. What is it made out oh, of? Oh, yeah. No, I know. Are there corporate he- logos? Or yeah, something? it's like a eight foot tall. I mean, Ronald McDonald in my eyes has always been menacing, but this one is particularly <laughs> menacing. But yeah, it's made out of corporate logos. Yeah. So so in a way, it becomes kind of a hyper sickle uh, itself because you're combining these these various symbols that stand for things into another. Other symbol, and but but then you get into situations too. If you combine too many symbols, does it is it kind of like combining all the the Crayola cra- uh, crayons, where you end up with just a blur? You end up with things like uh, well, like the rose, right? Uh, as Umberto Eco points out, the rose has symbolized so many different things mm-hmm. that it pretty much becomes devoid of meaning. It's kind of that the symbol has been completely worn out to the mm-hmm. point where it cannot convey any true message anymore. Uh, one of the the lines of philosophy that I really like about this is from uh, Louise Althusser. Hopefully I've said that correctly. And he described our existence as being tied to something called the ideology state apparatus. And um, it's this idea that we're always ready. We're always already. And by always already, what he means is that we are, even before we're born, we're born into this expectation and this um, embodiment of symbols. And so even when you are gestating in your mother's uterus, you are the symbol of whatever it is that, that, that society is going to put upon you. So if you're a girl, you're going to be wrapped in pink and all sorts of expectations. And it's a very interesting idea. Um, he says that it's the way that we're defined, that we are walking symbols. And essentially that allows us, or I shouldn't say allows, but those expectations give us a roadmap on how to behave. Yeah. So it's it's this idea of being both objectified but also subjected as um, is, is a placeholder in language. Hmm. You know, it reminds me, too, of uh, execution, torture, and even imagined execution and torture as, uh, as we encountered in our, our study of hell. Uh, various sins are punished varying ways. And uh, there's a strong argument that any form of real-life torture or execution uh, and any kind of imagined form, like those are all symbols. The, the idea of executing somebody in a certain fashion, mm-hmm. it's loaded with symbolic meaning, uh, especially when you deal with public executions, because you are creating a symbol to to try and, uh, and illustrate a point and convey a message to the populace. That's interesting. So a hanging would be very different from having your head cut off, right, with yeah. a guillotine. So yeah, what, is, what does it mean? What does being uh, drawn and quartered mean? What does being thrown into a sack with live animals mean? Like all of these bear uh, certain symbolic messages for the intended audience. To be absorbed, right? Yeah. yeah. And in, uh, I mean, I could go on on, on this kind of thing too, but uh, it also reminds me uh, the, the works of Bosch, uh, uh, you know, all those uh, those hellish apocalyptic uh, uh, sceneries where you have all these strange monsters doing strange things and tormenting people and all that. Like even a scene like that, we don't understand a lot of it, but to the uh, the individuals who would, be, uh, would who would have viewed that work of art at the time, loaded with symbols, known symbols. 
Uh, and, uh, and so in a sense, that painting is speaking a language of symbols to the viewer. And if you would like to actually experience these symbols firsthand in the form of a Buddhist hell theme park, ah. we actually found out yesterday that there is one in Singapore Yes, where you can go and look at all these visual representations of what Buddhist hell might be. Yeah, it looks amazing. And I, and I know we have listeners all over, so if any of you um, are in Singapore or end up traveling there or have traveled there and have visited that place, do let us know all about it. Symbolic rich, that one. Yep. All right, well, there you go. Uh, a crash course in symbols. Uh, like I say, if nothing else, I just hope that this makes you a little more alert to the power of symbols and how loaded our lives are with symbols, how they're very they're very useful to us. They are footholds in the mountain of understanding that allow us to ascend and learn new things and grapple with concepts that are really too much for our, our puny minds to, to deal with without the, the, uh, the advantage of language, but then also about how all these symbols around us are constantly influencing us and uh, arguably controlling us. On that uh, word, let's call over the robot. All right, so this is an interesting one. This comes to us from Isabel von Finkelstein. She writes in about our Sideshow Secrets episode. She says, hello, listening to the Sideshow Secrets episode. My grandma on my mom's side was apparently one of the headless women in Blackpool uh, in England. Uh, she also swallowed swords and red tarot. Apparently, my great-grandpa ended up joining the circus at 14 after stabbing someone in the leg and running away. He ended up with tuberculosis and then somehow was picked up by the carnies. So my grandma was brought up with them. Given that my family uh, sways to the theatrical and creative side of life, we weren't at all surprised that she had circus in the genes. It explained a lot, haha. I just wish I knew more of the history. I have a copy of a newspaper cutting somewhere. If I can find it, I'll forward it on to you. Again, another great podcast. I need to finish listening to it now. Thanks, guys. Isabel. Wow, and I thought that my family's history was colorful. <laughs> I know that's that's amazing, and uh, of course, Blackpool, England, is um, it's kind of a historically like a vacation area, like a little bit of a of a carny town in and of itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that um, uh, professional wrestler uh, Stephen Regal hails from there. You and, know, uh, and so you know, the, there's the wrestling that is a part of the carny, right? And all that. Yeah, that's part of the whole tradition. Yeah, um, that also reminded me of the book Geek Love. Yes, did we bring that up in the in the last? podcast sometimes it, there's a reference that's so key that we actually forget to bring it up when we do the podcast i know episode, so. and we're like oh, i can't believe yeah. we didn't mention that geek love by Catherine dunn amazing fictionalized account of of the carnival world and a fictional family that um is uh created essentially by the parents by messing with genes to create uh sideshow kids it sounds good. I have not read it. I hear great things. I know they locally did a, a production of it years ago. It was like six oh, hours really? long. Yeah, Six hours. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and uh, and leave you. But in the meantime, if you have something you would like to share with us, uh, go for it, uh, particularly related to symbols. What is your experience with symbols? Uh, how do they? How do you interact with them? Are you conscious of what symbols are doing to you? Is there a symbol that is particularly important to you? Let us know about it. I was talking earlier about how a symbol instantly conveys something that would take you a, a, a little little more time to actually to explain in words. So explain in words to us why a uh, symbol is important to you and what it means to you when you look at it. We'd love to hear that kind of thing. And you can find us in all the normal places. Our main website, of course, is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. We're also on Facebook and Tumblr at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And on Twitter, we go by the handle BlowTheMind. And then, oh, YouTube, Mind Stuff Show. That's where we are there. 
Okay, and there are two things I'm interested in in uh, hearing from you guys about. Yay or nay on the T-H-E versus T-H. The second thing today, uh, there was a story about Mattel and NASA creating a Barbie, that uh, a Mars Barbie. Yeah. Who's clad in pink. Progress or no? Let us know, and you can do so by sending us an email at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 